0: org. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Paul Renfro. I am an assistant professor of history at Florida State University, and I'm here with Michal Raz.
1: Hi, Michal Raz. I'm a professor of history and medicine at University of Rochester and Strong Memorial Hospital. And
0: today we are talking about her great new book, Abusive Policies, How the American Child Welfare System Lost Its Way. And I'm really interested uh, in learning more about how this project came to be. So if you could maybe talk a bit about the genesis of the project, that would be great.
1: Sure, so I think that there's two threads that kind of tie together. And the first is my research intellectual interest that my last book, What's Wrong with the Poor? was a story about how we pathologize poor parents and their parenting skills and how we tried to fix that with anti-poverty interventions and try to, you know, we were selling um, Head Start as a way to get parents to be better parents. And in many ways we were focusing uh, the policy was to, uh, in fact, it was about addressing poverty, but it was described as a way to get parents to be better parents. So fixing parents uh, through poverty intervention. Um, and that was in the sixties and then the seventies, shifted away from an interest in addressing poverty uh, and it became you know really criminalizing these parents the same parents who were struggling and poor and went to pet star where the kids were taught how to brush their teeth or some ridiculous depictions like the kids didn't even know their own names um because the parents were so poor and didn't use enough words talking to them all these kind of derogatory depictions of poverty rather than being used to support poverty intervention in the 60s, it suddenly became a way to pathologize parents and say, you know, these are terrible parents, this is child abuse, we need to intervene. And these interventions weren't supportive resource-based interventions, but they were often coercive, unwanted, unhelpful interventions that often resulted in removal of children from their homes. So in many ways, it's a story that everyone knows about how the war on poverty became the war on the poor. Uh, And we see that in so many different places, including in parenting. And then there was my own personal interest in this, and I was living in Philadelphia at the time, doing a fellowship, um, and I was working with a community action group that was looking was called DHS Give Us Our Children Back. And I was hearing stories from moms who had their kids removed from their own from their own homes and placed outside their homes. And I was living in West Philly with my two children at the time and a small dog. I have four kids by now, but you know, at the time, I had two kids, and my husband was stationed in a different state because uh, he was in the Navy. So in the evenings, I would and I had to pee and the kids were sleeping and I would leave the house and walk the dog around the block. Uh, and I soon realized that this was something that in many ways couldn't be done, uh, that I was being a bad parent by leaving the house. Uh, and so I felt, you know, I'm not gonna cross the street, I'm gonna be very careful. But these ideas of what, what level of supervision your children your children need versus what kind of supports you might have as a parent in this country it was like a huge gulf, um, and I never worried. My children were never removed from their home. I was never investigated. I, you know, I, nothing bad ever happened to me. I, and I am white and middle class. Uh, but the women who lived in my neighborhood, or in West Philadelphia, they had very different experiences. Uh, and this I found incredibly striking. That you know, I'm living on the edge here. I'm walking the dog. Um, I say this jokingly about you know, women rushed out the home to make a phone call, to go to the laundromat, and you know, they would. Find that their children were removed because of inadequate supervision, um, and I started asking questions, and that really led me to to bringing these two threads together about how we police poor families, and who gets to be policed, and who gets who gets to make their own decisions about what level of risk is appropriate for their kids. And I felt that walking my dog was an appropriate kind of around the block, right not going far. Walking my dog was an appropriate level of risk and necessary for my situation. And not everybody has a luxury of making that decision for their own family.
0: Great, yeah. And could you maybe talk, you've gestured a bit, to the sorts of political developments or kind of circumstances in which many of these developments took hold. Could you talk a bit more about that? You talked about the war on poverty and the ways in which that morphed into this war on the poor but yeah maybe talk about uh, the Moynihan Report or this larger kind of context in which many of these developments unfolded.
1: Yeah and I think there are different threads that come in here. First of all a growing emphasis on, on you know poverty and its ill effects on children uh, and recognizing that you know poverty doesn't enable children to thrive and, and how can we address that. Uh, at the same time in the 60s there was growing emphasis on child abuse as a medical phenomenon um, and you know, there's There's been a lot of uh, writing about you know the discovery of child abuse in which uh, early um, publications by Dr. Henry Kemp, a pediatrician, who described a syndrome of children with broken bones that were non-accidental caused by their parents. And this really hastened an era in which um, states scrambled to pass le- legislation that required physicians and other healthcare workers to report abuse. And the idea was that there were a very small number of cases that this was physical abuse uh, and that if doctors would report it, we'd be able to address it earlier and keep kids safer. Um, And as you know, from your own work, uh, many interventions to keep kids safer end up having many unintended consequences. And as the ideas of what constitutes abuse was uh, expanded, There are more and more reports and there became an infrastructure for the creation of reports uh, and states, um, some states even uh, passed universal mandating reporting that everybody is mandated to report and reports started streaming in. But amazingly, uh, states did not allocate more funds to deal with these reports, so we've created this kind of apparatus of reports and investigation, but no more money to deal with it and no more money for services. Uh, and even at the time people were making the really obvious observation that reporting is not helpful unless we're giving out more services. Um, and by the seventies there, uh, there was like a, a big article that said too much reporting, too little service. And a lot of uh, experts on child welfare were saying, you know, child abuse is too broad a category where we're making too many reports so this is not helpful. And yet the political culture and will was completely the opposite direction. Um, And there was a continual push to expand what child abuse is, which is an incredibly political category uh, and broadened each time to include emotional abuse, emotional neglect. And I agree that there are many suboptimal ways that don't enable children uh, for parenting or for child rearing that don't enable children to thrive. but they're not all abuse. And it kind of dilutes the idea of abuse. If all things we don't like are abuse, they all need to be reported. but then there's really no intervention that's helpful that results. Uh, and once children are, and families are ensnared in the system of reporting and investigating, it predictably leads to the removal of more children from their homes, which as anyone who knows anything about American culture and society can already guess, leads to the removal of disproportionately uh, Black, uh, indigenous uh, and families and families of color, and of course, uh, poor families having their children removed from their home. And there's this like weird aspect in which the money follows a child, so that we pay other people to provide substitute care for children, when this money could have been stayed in you know, could have kept, been kept in the community, given material supports of parents. Um, and to really simplify that absurd, you know, we, re- we solve poverty, and it's resultant um, difficulties for children by removing poor children from their homes and paying different parents to pay a parent. Uh, and it's, it's, when you think about it in those terms, and I, I have to say, you know, obviously the reality is a bit more complex, but in many ways that, that is what happens. We remove kids and pay someone else to raise them. It really raises questions about, you know, our commitment to families and, and child welfare versus our commitment to a carceral system that punishes, poor families and families of color.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of these threads converge in the chapter you have on these interwoven moral panics that really erupted in the 1980s. Um, Could you talk a bit more about those panics and how they maybe speak to some of the issues that you're addressing here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are two different stories that kind of show the same uh, core, which is, we are failing to protect our children. And that is the underlying narrative. And on the one hand, there was a big concern about undetected child abuse, child sexual abuse. And uh, unfortunately it was fueled by the media and maybe some unscrupulous clinicians who were working about repressed memories. Um, And I think many know the story about the Mark Martin preschool daycare. And at the time in the 80s, there was this moral panic that children were being sexually abused at a large scale throughout the country by the very people who were supposed to care for them. Uh, And this, uh, you know, people are still serving time in prison from these trials. Women were convinced by their therapists, by things that they read, that they had also been victims of uh, child sexual abuse. They had repressed these memories, and these memories were now bubbling. And this is a little complex because, of course, sexual abuse happens, and it happens in families. Uh, and I'm, some of these women certainly were abused. Um, but the moral panic and the daycare sexual abuse—I think it's nearly certain that none of that actually happened. Uh, there was, you know, the. The investigations were incredibly flawed. Uh, there was no evidence. Uh, and it was quite a, an, a weird episode in our history. Uh, but you know, much of it still resonates in people discovering and, and publicly condemning their family members for abuse and families experienced so much strife. Um, and, in, and in a result, it created a private industry of people who dealt with child abuse or child sexual abuse and, and sought treatment with these clinicians and so on. And in many ways it, it cheapened or diluted this focus on the sexual abuse that does happen uh, in homes, in schools and churches and so on. Uh, and this was in many ways, a white person problem. Uh, it was middle-class women, often uh, influential women, you know, Roseanne went on and, show, and t- talked about her sexual abuse and later recanted. Uh, but it was, it was a moment, it was a, a moral panic that there was sexual abuse Everywhere, and it was a reactionist kind of conservative response to changes in society, to children having to go to daycare, which is, you know, any parent will tell you is very, very stressful. Of moms working outside the homes, and in this way, it kind of crystallizes so many things that uh, evangelical Christians were pushing—that you know, about evil and fights of evil versus good, about women outside the house, about who cares for children, and so on. And at the same time, in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade, and and fetal personhood debates, there was focus on women who use drugs while they are pregnant and that this use essentially essentially constitutes child abuse. And in some states, this was actually by statute considered child abuse um, in, again, resonating deeply of fetal personhood. Uh, and there were different ways in which women were prosecuted. And these women were almost entirely women of color uh, who were using uh, crack cocaine and the whole panic about crack babies at the time. But the thing was that there was often no evidence of harm. For instance, women could use um, drugs during pregnancy, have a a good outcome, a normal pregnancy, a baby's delivered, and that baby would be removed from their uh, care because of these allegations of child abuse. Or even, uh, I, I think in my book, I talk about a woman who was on probation, and years later, this child, who was now a four or five-year-old and was thriving, was removed for her, for her home and she served a prison sentence. Um, so this really demonstrates that this is never about protecting children or children's well-being. It is about policing uh, women and policing their bodies. And we see this today. I mean, and there's a whole history here of testing pregnant women for drug use. And, and we know that there's disproportionate reporting of women of color, of poor women, and that, that there's differences between public and private settings and hospitals and insurance in terms of who gets tested and who gets reported. And in New York, where I live now, there's a bill that's being debated that um, to make sure that women don't get tested, uh, that their urine doesn't get tested for drugs without their consent, which makes you stop and wonder, wait, they were testing without consent. Uh, But so you, you think, you know, you're going to the doctor's office and that you're getting care. But in many ways, you're participating in this carceral moment or surveillance in which a doctor will order you're in drug screening on you without you saying agreeing to this. Uh, and on that basis, you might use, lose your child. And of course, you know, I'm not here to say that people should use substances when they're pregnant, but it's also interesting to think, you know, women um, drink wine when they're pregnant, they, they smoke cigarettes, they drink coffee. And many of these things are associated with um, worse outcomes. But suddenly, using drugs is the one thing that we remove children from their, you know, from their parents and and separate the mom and baby diet. Uh, so it it's not a question of what's more harmful to children. It's a question of you know what are, where are we focusing our efforts in terms of policing and intervention? Uh, and of course, the answer is not um, whatever it's whatever is more uh, harmful versus better for children.
0: Yeah, and so a lot of this to me is very reminiscent of some of the debates that are ongoing today uh, concerning child abuse um, and the safety of children, child protection, the policing of women's bodies. So could you maybe discuss some of the parallels? You know, the, the 80s weren't that long ago, but at the same time, they are perhaps a distinct historical moment Um, Is there a way in which not just the 80s, but the entire late 20th century and the the period and the material covered in your book, um, the ways in which that kind of shapes uh, our contemporary conception of these issues?
1: Yeah, I think it's only gotten more and more extreme in as much as uh, we consider, you know, we talk about ACEs, which are the first childhood events and all these things that we worry about children and how we can help them thrive. But rather than ensuring that children have what they need to thrive and the resources and the support and the money and the housing and the health insurance rather than making sure that children have what they need uh, the response becomes predominantly a response of reporting and reporting investigation doesn't result necessarily in resources in fact data shows that a majority of reports don't result in the provision of new resources to families um, so it's kind of you see a child who's and as a physician, I hear this from my colleagues. You see a child who has bad teeth, you call in a report for medical or dental neglect because you want, you know, you're a good doctor, you care deeply about children, you want this kid to get dental care. But calling a report doesn't result in the kid getting dental care. It results in a, in a report, an investigation, and often in no new services, and sometimes um, in the removal of a child or other uh, punitive interventions. And of course, the investigation themselves are not, you know, cost free. Uh, especially working moms of color, they might use it, lose a day of work. They might lose their job if they keep on having to go to different appointments. Uh, It's a huge source of stress for children, for families. Uh, It's traumatizing for children. Uh, And we know, you know, about a quarter of child removal, uh, uh, kids are back within 30 days to their home, was just, in my mind, is indicative that this removal was not necessary. Um, So these things have a cost and they persist to this day. And the more we expand the ideas of what child abuse is and expand more to include situations of poverty uh, and other suboptimal parenting that really deal with, you know, how do we help children thrive? The more we, we do this, you know, we're instinct more families and creating a system that just doesn't support families, but in fact regulates and polices certain families in our community. But I think we saw a lot of this with the pandemic, you know, in many ways, there's, there's so many examples to talk about. Well, one of them is you know when uh, conservative pundits say, oh, wearing a mask is child abuse. And in that way, it's true because everything I don't like is child abuse. Uh, and in fact, child abuse is a political category for me to wield so that I can make the arguments I want to make. And, if Tucker, When Tucker Carlson says that, that really demonstrates you know, a 40 year history of, of mobilizing this term child abuse. Of course wearing a mask is not child abuse, but so many other things also are not child abuse. Um, and we decide to turn them child abuse because we want to mobilize them uh, and politicize them and use them to get the outcomes uh, we want. Uh, and there's a lot of back and forth about what is and is not child abuse. And this pandemic has really um, brought that to the forefront. And another thing that the pandemic has shown is, um, I think this is early in the pandemic when children weren't coming to schools, there was a concern that child abuse was going undetected because we're not reporting, because schools are, are sites of mandated reporting and teachers are uh, create many reports. Uh, and it turns out that many reports, many reports were not made in as much as there was a big decrease in reports because teachers were not seeing children at school. But does that mean that there was a lot of child abuse that was undetected? In fact, the data doesn't show that. There were no greater numbers of significant physical harm or sexual abuse to children in terms of reports from emergency uh, rooms and other measures of physical harm to children. And, and with conversations with parents and so on, they reported having a huge sense of relief that people weren't, they weren't experiencing the same levels of surveillance uh, and that uh, they weren't having uh, uh, workers coming to the home examining what's on their shelves, what's in their, um, what's in their fridge, going through all these uh, intrusive home visits that essentially uh, discover poverty again and again and again. Uh, so I think there's a lot that can be learned from these pandemic experiences.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And do you maybe want to talk, You I think sketch some of this in the concluding pages of the book, uh, sketch out some potential proposals for a different world or a different kind of regime um, to use a sort of nefarious or a, a, a word with perhaps negative connotations, but um, yeah, is how if if you were in control of this entire system, I guess how would you uh, rectify it if it if it's even capable of being rectified?
1: So in my book, I talk about how I think child welfare should not be doing investigations, and that this should passed to a, you know, very few cases actually require investigation. These are cases of uh, physical and sexual abuse and significant harm. These are already crimes, and they should be investigated by individuals who are trained to investigate crimes, and in many ways, this would be the police. But the more I think about it, um, and I've spent some time thinking and and refining my um, ideas about this since I wrote the book, and I, in general, I think, you know, the child welfare system, maybe we should Think about it differently and maybe we should abolish it completely and ask you know what other ways you know instead of replacing it by something else that does the same job of intervening and surveilling and investigating how do we create a society in which all children can thrive and where we can support families and really focusing on what does endanger children like poverty and lack of health insurance and homelessness and hunger um and and so And inadequate childcare, a lot of situations happen when mothers have to work and don't have childcare. So seeing instead of saying, you know, how could we child welfare better? How could we not need child welfare in terms of a system of investigation and intervention? But how could we rethink society in a way that we don't need this and that we could help, you know, elevate families and, and strengthen families and, um, and strengthen communities and make sure children can thrive in their own homes and that's really what i'm thinking about these days and uh the work of uh, dorothy roberts has really uh, influenced me and you know 20 years ago she wrote shattered bonds about the color from and racism in child welfare and she had been a longtime proponent of reform and, and she had been on many committees and thinking about uh, disproportionality and her new book is coming out in april in which she also argues to abolish child welfare and that it cannot be fixed. Uh, but I just want to say, you know, think, thinking about abolition is not not caring for children. It is caring deeply for children, thinking about other methods that we can ensure children can grow and thrive, um, but without this aspect of coercive of investigation. Uh, but somebody asking you know, what do we do in the meantime when children are being hurt and so on? Um, and and that's, I mean, that's true. Children are being hurt in their homes, and there's a lot of evidence that shows that um, poverty is a risk factor for physical abuse uh, and lack of childcare, lack of... um, So I think making sure we address the risk factors for physical abuse is going to help protect children. And in the meantime, I would still revert to where I was in the book, which thinking that those individuals whose work it is, is to support the welfare of children should not be doing investigations, should not have the power to remove children from their home, should not have this power of police uh, to intervene to families. And, and if there's a crime, then we have a whole separate system to deal with it.
0: Great, yeah, and it it's interesting how closely a lot of that discussion mirrors larger discussions concerning police abolition and, and uh, the abolition of jails and prisons, right? Um, it's not necessarily an absence or taking away what exists and, and replacing it with nothing, but rather addressing the very conditions that uh, necessitate, in some people's minds, the existence of police and jails and prisons. Um, yeah, so what, maybe you can tell us a bit about what you're working on
1: now. Sure, yeah. And I think this this book really went into the 80s and a little bit of 90s, and, and I showed about how what happened in the aftermath of um, the Adoption Assistance Child Welfare Act helped set the stage to say that family preservation was tried and failed. And that led us to the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which essentially hastened the timeline for adoption and made it easier or even required uh, agencies to pursue termination of parental rights so that we're in a situation now that almost one in 100 families will experience some form of uh, uh, termination of parental rights intervention. Um, And so the Adoption and Safe Families Act was a big turning point in thinking about child welfare in which Adoption was really promoted as the answer. And it's kind of up to absurd that you know that we have poverty, we have uh, all these challenges that families face, and then we respond to it by saying, okay, we'll I'll get you a new set of parents, as if, um, you know, as if this is not a trauma in itself. And of course, many of the families affected by the Adoption and Safe Families Act, uh, which deals specifically with how many months in the past two years uh, children have been in substitute care, are not accused of abuse in any way. And these families may be struggling with addiction, uh, incarceration and other challenges. Uh, and this, the result is that you know their parental rights are terminated and there is they have no recourse, they have lost their children, the death penalty for families essentially. Um, and this was passed in 1987 and this was in the aftermath of the uh, big Clinton welfare reform uh, and and it's it's important to understand it within the political setting that occurred so uh my new project is looking at the adoption I Say families act which i believe is kind of one of the reasons that the child welfare system today looks the way it does uh and a first step for reform if we're not you know abolition is a process not a one-off thing so you know we're not going to abolish child welfare tomorrow but if we can repeal part of the harmful aspects of the adoption as Safe families act i think that would go a long way to protect the um protect the welfare of children and help families and children thrive so understanding more how we ended up with asfa uh, and what were the political forces that shaped it i think would be a starting point for that conversation and that is my uh, new project that i'm just getting started on and i'm very excited about um, thinking oh, about
0: Excellent. Sounds like a terrific project. And in the meantime, um, everyone should go out and purchase Abusive Policies How the American Child Welfare System Lost Its Way, published last year by the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. SHCY dot org